Welcome to Behind the Line, the podcast where you'll get untold stories from first responders and military veterans. I'm Tim Hegman. I'll be your host. Our guest today is Chief Mike Albanese. Chief Albanese has been serving the law enforcement profession for 51 years. He began his law enforcement career in 1971 with the Los Angeles Police Department, and after 37 years of service, retired in 2008. In 2010, he unretired, was hired as a captain with the Burbank Police Department. He eventually became the department's deputy chief, and in December of 2021, was appointed as their chief of police. It is my honor to introduce our guest, Chief Mike Albanese. Hi, Chief, and welcome to the Behind the Line podcast. Uh, and thank you for the invite. Oh, you're welcome. Um, you know, all the people that uh, in law enforcement you're still serving, um, couldn't ask for anybody else besides you to be our first our first guest. Yeah, so thank uh, you. Thank you. Very kind of you. So 51 years. Uh, nowadays, that's a, that's a rare, <laughs> very rare feat for law enforcement. So uh, I don't know if I'd recommend it for everyone. Uh, uh, the passion is still there. The interest... Uh, uh, I still have great admiration for the folks that serve on a daily basis, and that's what drives me, and uh, I believe I have the heart to serve, and that started uh, back in 1971, and it still uh, is going on. Well, it's that's good. We need people uh, uh, in law enforcement like yourself who still, after all these years, have the passion to serve others, so thank you. You got it. We're going to get into your career in a little bit, but before we do, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your family, uh, where you grew up? So I uh, grew up in the city of Los Angeles, uh, born, and, uh, born and raised, went to uh, elementary school, junior high school, high school, two universities, uh, graduated from two colleges. Um, my grandfather, who's going to have the greatest influence on my career decision, uh, my mother's father, uh, worked for LAPD uh, from 1923 to the mid-40s, and then his brother, uh, 1924 to 1950. So growing up, uh, I grew up in a law enforcement family because at family gatherings, at Christmas, there would always be a police story. And I remember it being mesmerizing for me, and I knew at an early age that I wanted to go into law enforcement. Both of them worked LAPD. They were passionate about the organization. They were passionate about the city. And so for me, it was a uh, uh, a, a no-brainer that uh, uh, once I get out of college and I'm old enough that I would apply with LAPD. And that's what I did, and that started August 9, 1971. Uh, my parents weren't really happy about it because my mom grew up in a law enforcement family. Her father was a homicide detective, and uh, she vividly remembers the, the call-outs and being gone for two and three days. And she really, and also my father, uh, really wanted me to pursue a different career. Uh, I prevailed, and uh, I haven't looked back at all. And here you are today. Here I am today. Just just kind of as a footnote, uh, uh, family-wise, I have three three children, all adult, all uh, in their respective careers and thriving. But uh, there was a um, some commonality uh, growing up when I did and uh, paying attention to my grandfather, our oldest daughter in in. And, and I didn't see it coming, and my wife didn't see it coming, was also fascinated with the my career in law enforcement. And I remember we uh, were hosting some SWAT folks that were from out of, uh, out of the area, uh, from Alaska, Chicago, New Hampshire. And when we'd have these uh, training sessions, my wife would always do a barbecue for these guys so they would have a home-cooked meal. And I remember seeing in the corner of my eye, my daughter would just be sitting there. And I'm thinking, what what? What's that about? I mean, this is this is guy stuff. Right. This right. is SWAT stuff. And um, so fast forward, and we're at dinner one night, and she goes, "What do you think of the Beverly Hills Police Department?" And I go, "Yeah, great, great reputation. Uh, you know, well paid, well staffed, well equipped." She goes, "I'm thinking about applying." And I go, "Have at it." Right. Because I'm believing then at the time Beverly Hills was primarily taking laterals, ah. and 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 certainly women uh, I did not realize where women were uh, on their radar, but they were doing a really aggressive campaign for uh, recruiting women. She was recruited with uh, at the bank where she worked. She had a couple of Beverly Hills officers that encouraged her apply. Uh, Twenty one years later, uh, she is still with the Beverly Hills Police Department. She's a, a captain and she is thriving. 
Wow. So. Obviously, proud dad. Uh, very proud. Uh, uh, proud of all three of the children, but, you know, uh, the, the law enforcement nexus. So her husband's in law enforcement. My middle daughter, who's an educator, her husband's in law enforcement. I begged my son. I said, do something else. They're going to think we're a family of losers because we can only work civil service jobs. So he's an entrepreneur and thriving. Wow. So the family get-togethers uh, are full of stories, entertainment, and maybe there's some other grandkids or whoever around listening and may carry on that tradition of the of the family and being law enforcement. You we, never know. We we believe that will be the case, but uh, our Thanksgiving, Christmas dinners, uh, it always circles back to some law enforcement-related uh, topic, uh, incident. Um, uh, you can imagine how that is. Yes. So, uh, my wife is weary of it <laughs> because she knows where it's going to end up. Yeah, she knows the, she knows the MO and what's going to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, I get I get that. You mentioned your degrees. So what degrees do you hold and what colleges did you graduate from? So uh, a bachelor from uh, California State University, Los Angeles, commonly referred to as Cal State LA. So that's a criminal justice major. Uh, then I went to graduate school there for a short period of time, then jumped over to USC, University of Southern California, and graduated with a degree in um, uh, a, a master's of public administration with an emphasis on city management. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very nice. All right. Kept it local at the uh, USC. I did. I did. Good deal. All right. So you talked about why you, you know, what interested you in law enforcement and those mentors or those people you looked up to who helped uh, guide you and you know, maybe even encouraged you to um, to do the law enforcement thing. Um, and you mentioned LAPD. Did you ever think of another agency that you may go to, or was it just I'm going to go to LAPD? So uh, I actually thought about the FBI. I, I was a clerk for the FBI. Uh, in 1969 to 1970. Okay. So that was a full-time job while I was going to college uh, at Cal State LA, and that was a, a strong interest. But at the time, uh, the FBI really wanted folks that were either accountants or attorneys and or had military experience or other law enforcement experience. So if I had graduated in 71 or when I graduated in 71, I would not meet the baseline qualifications. Ah. So I thought, you know what, um, uh, LAPD has been in our family for years. We'll go with LAPD. Let's see how that goes. I'll go to graduate school. Maybe I'll be a viable candidate for the Bureau. And in, in just to be very uh, forthright, is that once once I was onboarded with LAPD and was immersed in the organization, uh, I, was, I was committed. I, I was all in on that. Oh, good deal. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, LAPD is just, you know, a pristine department, has been for many, many years, and what a great place to start your career and gain all that experience. Mm -hmm. So with that, while you're with L LAPD, what were some of the assignments that you worked as a young officer and then as you progressed up through the ranks? So um, uh, for like most officers, you don't have a clue. Uh, you just want to get immersed into the organization and learn, learn how to be a good, well-rounded police officer. Uh, I was fortunate. Uh, there was a couple of folks that I worked for, sergeants and lieutenants, that uh, kind of nudged me around as far as uh, you need to go to gangs. So I worked 77th gangs. I had great partners there. Uh, and then uh, another nudge, you need to work uh, vice. So I did a tour, 77th vice, uh, had some wonderful partners there, wonderful supervision. And the supervisor that probably was the strongest influence at the time, and there was a couple of them, is Jeff Rogers, uh, who ultimately is going to be 10 David, and that's going to be the SWAT OIC. So when I refer to set 10 David, that's like the SWAT commander. Got it. Uh, there's only one David, uh, 10 David in the uh, uh, organization, and uh, ultimately he's going to be a 10 David. So I work for him, device, I actually work for him in patrol, and an, uh, another uh, supervisor I had uh, who is uh, just a great mentor and continues to be a friend today, and that's uh, Mike Hillman. Uh, Mike Hillman has had an incredible career in law enforcement. He retired as a deputy chief from LAPD, a deputy chief from the Orange County uh, Sheriff's, an assistant chief with the LA Port, and he's still working in law enforcement. So we still uh, are connected and uh, been a, just a tremendous influence on my professional career. But going back to Jeff Rogers, Jeff Rogers had worked SWAT as a police officer and uh, had worked SWAT as a, a sergeant. And ultimately, he's going to be the, the 10 David, the SWAT OSC. And he would, he would tell me, he said, there's only one job in this organization, and that's SWAT. 
and, and I didn't even know what a SWAT was. <laughs> I truly did not know. Right. Uh, but this was a guy that was uh, just so passionate about the mission and managing crises that that it was really a strong influence. Uh, uh, you know, as far as not pursuing the investigative. Uh, process or other processes. Uh, so when uh, I got timed out advice, did uh, some time in narcotics, then I applied to Metro, which is the division that has different platoons, mm. crime suppression platoons, and uh, one of which is D-Team or SWAT. And a uh, short time later, uh, so late 70s, I uh, applied to SWAT, uh, became uh, one of the members in D-Team. Okay. Uh, so uh, just uh, I'll, I'll finalize the career. So D team, then I promote to sergeant, then go back to D team, then I promote to lieutenant, then I go back to D team. So there's a common theme there. Yes. So when I retired uh, in in 08, I was convinced that I would never work again until I got a phone call. And this was going to be a six month contract <laughs> and it's been 13 plus years. Right. Yeah. I get it. I yeah. get it. Yeah. yeah. Things happen that way. Yeah. You know, they get you and then they have you. Yeah. So I understand. Um, you know, you don't recall this, but I certainly do. So many, many years ago, when I was a young uh, sergeant, I was um, a supervisor of our, at our department's uh, crisis negotiation team. And way back when, um, or maybe around 2008 or something like that, um, I went to a training class and you were one of two instructors and uh, it was just fascinating, uh, your stories and the way you instructed and your, your passion. Um, and, you know, and with that, you have, as you just said, with your career, you have over 27 years related to SWAT and crisis negotiations. Uh, and you talk about how you started with that. Um, and obviously, it's a great career and uh, a lot of incidents, a lot of stories. But out of your entire career, but spe- specific to SWAT, um, what was or what are, you know, what's one or two or three incidents, notorious incidents that stand out? How did you get involved in that with, you know, with the SWAT negotiations? Uh, and what was just the background of those, those calls? So uh, just a, a, a quick background on the SWAT C&T model. So when I talk about C&T, it's the crisis negotiation team. So with uh, LAPD and a lot of the West Coast teams will have their negotiators in embedded in their SWAT team. So it's a collateral duty. Yeah. So you could be a SWAT team member, collateral duty of a negotiator, a sniper, an EMT. So in late 70s, uh, I went to uh, the basic 40-hour C&T training that LAPD hosted. Actually, it was Hillman and Dr. Uh, Adelin that uh, uh, provided that training. And, and it's the best training that I've ever had because it was a skill set that I learned that I use every mm. single day. Right. Every single day. And um, so the training and incident, so uh, the what was appealing is that uh, on one call up, you could be on the entry team or on the perimeter. And then the next call up that you're the primary or the secondary negotiator, which means that you're, you're talking to the subject. And, and this is where lives are actually in the balance and what you say really matters. So, so there, there's three cases that I'll highlight and one, not that many folks are familiar with, but they should be. And it occurred August 2nd, 1983. And it was called uh, the medical clinic. And it was at the time an abortion clinic that uh, was well known in the area, in the Mid-Wilshire area. And you had a male that uh, had breached the building in the early morning hours. And when uh, some of the employees started arriving at work, he ended up taking two as hostages. Mm. So this this hostage-taking incident uh, lasted 14 hours. And, and uh, I was... Um, assigned to be the primary negotiator with the suspect. And, and this incident uh, exercised every aspect of our, our resources and our personnel. And Sergeant Ron McCarthy, who is another mentor of mine, uh, was essentially the SWAT incident commander because our captain, Jeff Rogers, were in Europe looking at other counterterrorist units 
in preparation for the Olympics. Mm. So really have just a sergeant driving a significant operation, and he is depending on his people to really step up their game. Sure. So uh, the, the suspect was provocative in the sense that he, um, during the negotiation process, he, he was talking about how his former girlfriend had an abortion at the clinic, and he was there to uh, be the avenger avenging angel mm. of what happened to his girlfriend. So if, if you were on the outside looking in, you would believe that uh, the pursuit or his intentions were to um, um, reconcile the abortion that his girlfriend had, and that, that absolutely wasn't the case. Mm. Uh, he ultimately is going to reveal himself, and he is a career criminal, a career criminal who is from Texas, a career and he had, uh, it, uh, had, we didn't know this at the time, but had been implicated in uh, uh, three of the murders. Hmm. And the dialogue with him was uh, I- exhausting, and he was testing us all the time. And the other thing that he would do is just some a behavior we'd never seen before. Uh, when he wanted food delivery, so folks that are in the SWAT t- CNT world know that's a big deal, hmm. is that... How do you get the food to the door? Who's going to get the food? Who's going to pay for the food? And how can we get it to them safely? And uh, we're going to negotiate the type of food and all of that. But before the food was delivered at the back door, he had tied off the back door. And uh, we see a mirror uh, on some uh, sticks, uh, tongue depressors that was taped up. And it was like a corner mirror. Hmm. So yeah. anybody that has worked SWAT or, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the tactical side of things, know how, how critical those mirrors are. So so Bomar is using this mirror, and he's kind of looking, and then at the corner of the building, we have our guys with their mirror, and the mirrors are looking at each other. So that really put us, uh, put us on high alert as far as the sophistication of this uh, suspect. So not only sophistication, but this was someone who was really committed. So fast forward through a pretty arduous CNT process, and uh, from the onset, uh, he was demanding a vehicle. So understand this is 1983. The CNT process is still new to us in law enforcement. So it's only seven, eight years. The SWAT model is still new to us. So you have a food delivery, you have a hostage-taking incident, this is a stranger event, and now he wants a car. So. We had never done a car, a vehicle delivery before. We had never done a hostage rescue from a vehicle. We had trained in that. We had trained in uh, all of these scenarios, but but never in real life where where lives were truly in the balance. Mm. So, um, uh, in the background, when we're on the CNT side of things. Um, uh, just kind of a footnote, uh, there was a psychologist that was uh, attached to our CNT team, and he heard something that, uh, that uh, clearly I missed, because all of a sudden he jumps up and runs out of the, runs out of the CNT uh, um, area there. I'm thinking, what the heck is that all about? Well, he speaks to Rama McCarthy and said, okay, this is going to be a bad outcome. This is serious stuff. Mm. Someone's going to die. Okay. So I don't have a clue. So I'm still introducing words, you know, affirming him, trying to encourage him to surrender. In the mean, meantime, the, the doctor, our psychologist, tell McCarthy is that we're, we're going to have a gun battle here. Probably better off not knowing that, but because um, uh, just kept, kept driving until even the last words that I had with him is still, you know, giving him hope as far as surrendering. So fast forward, a car is acquired. Uh, you have a team of SWAT officers exercising a uh, hostage rescue from a vehicle. Uh, we're using technology that we've never used before, and one of it is an end device, END device, electronic neutralizing device that you put on the car, and that it's activated with a radio so the car's on, and then you can shut off the car, and the car won't, won't start or move. Uh, when they were testing it, it only worked 50% of the time. Uh, the other thing is that we had sniper positions up, believing that if he came out, that uh, sniper shot would uh, stop the incident. Right. Yep. 
when the car is delivered, uh, he was very specific. He, the suspect, that he wanted uh, the lights on, doors open, uh, hood, uh, the trunk open because he wanted to make sure no one was inside there. And before the suspect and hostages exit the hospital, um, there is a, a weird sound that we hear. And it was a fire extinguisher. And, and the suspect had shot... Uh, or uh, used the fire extinguisher and shot it at the uh, car and essentially made a cloud oh. over the car. So so it was really eerie. It was almost twilight zone-ish because you have this car in the middle of summer evening and then there's a cloud on this car. In addition to that, when the three, when the three suspects or when the three people come out, suspect and two hostages, they were all dressed like. They had hospital gowns on, they had hospital mask on, and hospital caps on. So as far as target identification, no one knew. The other thing is that he had the uh, hostages tethered. Hmm. So when they got in the car, the end device was activated, the sniper team was off, he, uh, it was my partner, he said, uh, I, have no tar- I have no target identification, so he's out. And we um, uh, have the the rescue team that starts moving up and they can't tell the suspect from the female hostages. They can't tell. So they're, they're, they're poised. The suspect recognizes that the car stopped and he's yelling at the driver. He's in the center, you know, start the car, start the car. Let me help you stop the car. And he must sense that something is behind him and he takes the gun and turns around and points uh, to the back of the car, and then we had target identification, mm-hmm. and then uh, there ends up being a uh, shooting. They shoot the suspect. They rescue the hostages. But when they go to rescue the hostages, now imagine this, that you're part of the the hostage handler team, and you're, you're kneeling down at the car door, and rounds are going over your head, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's rescue, rescue, and you grab a hostage from each of the respective sides, and they go to pull them, and they're tethered together. And their necks went like about like this. And um, someone said, you know, cut the cut the rope. And uh, actually, it was electrical cord. And they they were rescued. So so at the time, context is 1983. I get it. No cell phones. Nothing. No 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 video. No no nothing. But this was a big deal for our organization. Uh, to our knowledge, it was the first time uh, it was a successful uh, uh, hostage rescue from a vehicle, uh, exercised flashbangs, exercised all sorts of stuff that we had never done before. So that's an incident that uh, I, I look back on, and especially McCarthy, uh, McCarthy and the folks that were involved, and especially the folks that were, were close to a threat and were in absolute peril with hostages that were in peril, and, and prevailed. You know, can I ask a quick question on that? Sure. So with the suspect there, obviously he put a lot of thought into it or, you know, maybe beforehand or he just thought as he went along. Did he have any military background? So uh, we all had those questions and actually that's a great question. What was his history? What w- did he have extraordinary training? Mm. And here's the bottom line. He was a career criminal, a career criminal that for the most part had been successful. And there, there were two other murders, you know, this is post incident and this is where the investigators do the, you know, heavy lifting and the uh, investigative legwork where it was a similar MO that he went into a business uh, when it was closed, waited for employees arrived and um, ended up uh, uh, murdering two folks there. And it was all about money and drugs. Hmm. So um, no family had been in prison in, uh, Texas and California, a young guy. If you saw him walking down the street, uh, this is Manhattan Beach, you'd say that's a surfer dude. Mm. He had blonde hair. He looked like a surfer. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, but just a uh, pretty uh, a vile human being. It, you know, it goes to show that you you this you guys have never done this before, but you'd practiced, and it goes to practice, practice, practice because it may never happen. But in this case, you're uh, being prepared, studying, 
and uh, practicing beforehand paid off. And it was a real life event that you were able to be successful at. Yeah, and uh, you you cannot you cannot train enough. Right. And 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 create scenarios that you'll say will never happen because they will happen. Because I'm going to segue into a scenario that I said that would never happen. And uh, it's also equipment. And in the event that vehicle rescue didn't work, then what? And if that tactic didn't work, then what? Because if he gets out of the parking lot and he's northbound on the 405, then what? Mm. So um, uh, to your point, uh, training, the acquisition of equipment, uh, knowing how the equipment works, uh, having good team members uh, where uh, everyone is working together, uh, understands the mission is mission-driven. Yes. So let me let me segue, segue to O.J. Simpson. Okay, So uh, uh, at that moment in time in my life, uh, I was convinced post-incident that I had seen everything in law enforcement. There's nothing more to see <laughs> because you could not have scripted what occurred that, that Friday. I think it was June, June 17th, 1994. And as you recall, this is Simpson. Uh, it was a handshake with the detectives and the attorneys is that he was going to surrender himself at LAPD headquarters at noon. Um, uh, D team was working, uh, uh, later detail that afternoon. I was at home, I had it on TV cause I was just curious, like everybody else in the nation is that how that, how that's going to look. Plus Metro was back there. They were going to be part of the receiving team when he surrendered and, uh, it didn't happen. Um, thought it was odd, but you know, uh, waited, figured, you know, at some point in time, it's going to happen. Well, at 1.30, that's when uh, Deputy Chief Dave Gascon, David Gascon, uh, declared O.J. Simpson a fugitive from justice. And that's when everything everything changed. Um, we did a pre-watch workout back at the office. I'm a sergeant at the time. We have the TV on because we're curious, just like everybody else, sure. how this is going to end. And, and I'm telling you is that none of us expected that we would have uh, a critical role as far as taking him into custody, especially when they had the sightings in Orange County. So for folks that are not from California, Orange County is a considerable distance from the city of Los Angeles. And then if you go to the west side, that's even a greater distance. So we we, we have the TBI and we have the sighting and then they have the following and in all the 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 madness associated with that and the people on the freeway over ramps with signage right it was it was it was insane and we're sitting in the office and we're being hypercritical of the folks that are involved in it because they're not doing their job and uh, they're not doing their job because they're being told not to do their job oh. and they said let it go back to los angeles that's their problem wow okay and um and then we get the phone call, and it's an abrupt phone call. It says, hey, go to Rockingham uh, and take him into custody. It's like, you're freaking kidding me. Right. Uh, uh, could we need to get any more clues? And so it was a different type of mission. And for the folks on the tactical side, I think they were understand this, is that we worked from the inside out on this one. Our negotiating team was going to ultimately be in the inside of the residence, and Simpson's going to drive up in the Bronco and going to be on the outside. So things were reversed. It was just, it was just odd because when we got on scene there, none of us expected, uh, uh, the volume of folks and, uh, media rigs that were mm. up and down the street. I mean, these were international media rigs, uh, with the big satellite dishes. I mean, we had a tough time finding a place to park. Uh, the crowd started growing there and, and, and we're all just shaking our head. This is just, this is madness. So when we get on scene there, there's Simpson's family. Part of the family is inside eating. Uh, went in, introduced myself and said, look, uh, you're going to have to leave because, you know, something's going to happen. <laughs> right. So they're annoyed. So we get rid of them. Um, you know, we have folks uh, being placed on the perimeter. We have our uh, snipers because we don't know what's going to happen. This is what we know. Uh, fugitive from justice implicated in two murders, uh, believed to be armed. So uh, I would put this in the very high risk category, uh, coupled with the fact that it's going to be televised. So we're 
setting up uh, the perimeter. I have the negotiating team. I have a primary, a secondary negotiator uh, that is going to dialogue with uh, Simpson if that happens. We don't know if he's just going to drive in the driveway, get out of the car, surrender, and be done with it. And so we're, we're looking at all the contingencies. Uh, we have folks in ghillie suits so that they would blend into the vegetation in the event that um, there's some type of violence. Uh, in, in the background, this is just uh, something that I just can't let go. There's two dogs. There's two big dogs that are just sitting on the driveway. And guys would run by and they'd be talking to a, you know, a partner or this and that, and they'd be petting the dogs. It's just natural. Just right, petting their, right. talking to the dogs because the dogs were the coolest feature of that whole thing. They were calm. They were they were they were enjoying all of it, and they were enjoying the attention. Yes. Sergeant comes up to me. One of my peers. He goes, "Oh my God, we got dogs there. We need to OC them." I go, <laughs> "Don't. <laughs> They're the only ones that are calm right now. So in the background, you have to look for them. But you're gonna have two big dogs." Just lying there during all of this stuff, you know, just oblivious to... Not bothered at all. Not bothered at all. Oblivious to the crisis that is unfolding. So we're inside. We're trying to ping uh, Simpson, uh, Simpson up. We have cell phones. This is 1994 technology, not uh, 2022 technology. So we're in out. In fact, it's probably a flip phone. And uh, we're in and out trying to... Um, uh, establish a dialogue and a relationship with him. And then all of a sudden we can hear them because red lights and sirens, there's police cars from uh, certainly LAPD, CHP, uh, uh, departments in uh, Orange County to include a Santa Ana canine unit whose dog was losing its mind over all of this. And they pull into the driveway. So we're standing at the door. So I got uh, Pete Wireeder and Gregory Wells, primary, secondary negotiator, and I'm standing right next to him. And then to my right in the hallway is a television. It was it was just odd that a television would be there and be on. So it was very surreal. So you have the Bronco right in front of us, and then you have the television. So we're watching it live. But the epiphany for me was is that Everybody's watching this, right? And everybody. This is 1994, so this is after the riots, and there are people betting on us that we're going to do something wrong. Mm. And uh, uh, a great negotiating unit, uh, coupled with uh, our, our tactical folks that uh, have discipline. Because when he came in to the driveway, he's in the back seat. He had the barrel of uh, his weapon under his chin, just mm. like this. Wow, just like this, and. So is this going to be uh, suicide by cop? He's just going to self-inflict? Is this going to be theater? But we are going to introduce words to encourage a surrender. So I believe it's either 46 or 56 minutes of dialogue. Uh, Wired and Wells do a, just a great job encouraging him to uh, uh, surrender. And um, uh, the progress of the negotiation process the indicators, one, the gun went away. So that was a really good sign. But then what he was doing, he had photos of his family, his wife and the kids, and he had them cradled in his arms like this. Uh, and they uh, had uh, like a chrome frame. So it was bright, shiny object. Right. So bright, shiny objects in the law enforcement world is serious stuff. So um, get the snipers going, okay, uh, what's in his hands? We see something that's uh, shiny. Does he still have the weapon? What What is his hands and arms? Um, we, and we could see it. It was clear. So that ongoing communication is that, look, he's got framed photos. In fact, before he exits, we ask him to hold them up so that uh, everyone can see so we don't have a, a misstep. Um, and ultimately he is going to, uh, exit, uh, he gets out of the vehicle and, uh, kind of, um, just a few steps, uh, falls into our arms. Uh, mm. we put him in, uh, uh, the living room there and it's over and, uh, just some interesting facts. Uh, we, we got hammered by some folks, um, as far as that he got special treatment. He got to talk to his mother. Mm. We let him go to the bathroom. 
And it's just absolute nonsense. I mean, we had a call up the week before where the condition of surrendering is that, look, I just want to talk to my mom. Can I talk to my mom? And we're going to facilitate that. Sure. And that was one of the uh, negotiating elements here is that he goes, hey, I want to talk to my mom. So we can make that happen. And and what I want to tell him is that we do this all the time. This is our wheelhouse. We know how to do this. So when he, when he came in, we get him on the couch, uh, and he was beat up. He uh, said, look, I, I'm, I'm sorry. The gun wasn't for you. It was for me. Kept apologizing. So so there was no threat to anybody, and all the gun and everything else was in the car. And he said, I really need to go to the bathroom. So, so is this like a command decision here? Right. No, uh, this is pretty simple. So uh, two SWAT guys are going to have— <laughs> on uh, their epitaph is that they watch uh, O.J. Simpson take a leak. <laughs> right. so that, uh, And then he came back and he goes, uh, uh, can I talk to my mom? So I phoned up his mom. Um, it made an introduction, handed off the phone, what you would expect. I'm here, I'm fine, I'm safe, I'm sorry. That was it. So the only humorous part was, he said, can I, can I have something to drink? So, sure, so... Looked at one of my guys. I know exactly who it is. I said, hey, just make it happen. So he goes in there, and he's in there for a while getting a drink. And I'm thinking, what, what's going on? So he comes back, and he has a glass. And he goes, OJ? OJ. <laughs> Simpson, Simpson, it's not going to resonate with him. Right. Uh, but for the rest of us, we had the big eye roll. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, then it was a handoff to the detectives, and the detectives, uh, took him downtown. It was, uh, uh, you know, a circus atmosphere out there. Uh, I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, folks, uh, especially with the signage, uh, and I ask myself, do they understand the significance of the allegations? Mm, right. So, uh, and then his, his storyboard goes into another dimension, if you will. So any thoughts on that before I jump to North Hollywood? Yeah, so just real quick, it just goes back to the communication between the negotiators, whoever's on scene, right. to communicate what they're seeing with the snipers. Mm -hmm. Because the snipers don't know. They just see a shiny object, think, oh, it's a knife, it's a gun. Uh, there's somebody else in the car. Sure. What's going to happen? But for, for the negotiators to be able to communicate, we can see what it is. It's not a threat. is very important. So that communication is, is critical. Right. So it's ongoing communication. So the, the uh, also the update on the phone, off the phone, we're doing voice to voice, maybe back on the phone and give updates as far as progress of negotiations. A big, uh, big point for me is always if, if a subject is kind of intimating or even thinking about surrendering, I want the perimeter folks to know mm, right. because it may be abrupt because we've seen and you've seen it sure. where all of a sudden they make us, I'm coming out now. Right. And we can't say, no, 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 we're not, we're not quite ready yet for you. Right. Is it coming out? And we're going to uh, facilitate that and make it as seamless as possible. So there was constant updates as far as the progress of the negotiations, the discussion about he was thinking about surrendering, how that looks, who's the custodial team, and all of that was coordinated. Again, this this was a very different setting for us where we were our roles were reversed or this uh, as, as far as being on the inside and taking them into custody versus them coming out to us surrendering sure. and taking them into custody. But it worked and and uh, I give high marks to everyone who was associated with that call up as far as the discipline, understanding the dynamic, um, kind of sort of believing that we were being videotaped. And that that was viewed live by 95 million people. Sure. Yeah. So so if we LAPD has a misstep, uh, uh, we're going to get excoriated. And this is coming after uh, Rodney King and the riots. And uh, for us, it uh, uh, it was a proud moment in the sense as far as how we managed the incident. We managed ourselves well, and we managed the incident well. Everybody can provide the commentary they want. But uh, we were in the moment, and we we done good on that one. Yeah, really did fantastic. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for that. What about the North Hollywood? Uh, so the North uh, North Hollywood. So this is gonna be. Uh, let me see if I get my dates right here. February twenty eighth, nineteen ninety seven. So the, the the backstory to that is that that actually Metro and the FBI 
and RHD, so Robbery Homicide Division, and the FBI had been looking at these uh, bank robbers uh, for a year. Uh, and there was, uh, they had uh, committed some other crimes. They had gotten a lot of money. Uh, they were, uh, suspects were dressed up in military type uh, uh, clothing to include body armor. Um, it appeared that they had headsets on. Uh, it appeared that they had some type of extraordinary training that they, um, they were good with their time management. Hmm. And they were very violent. So uh, there was one murder. There was almost 740,000-ish. You're going to have to fact-check my money on, uh, numbers on that. As far as uh, uh, armored car robbery and bank robberies, uh, they were partial. The suspects were partial to B of A's. Mm. Don't know why. Um, speculation is that they, they knew when the money would be delivered and they would coordinate the robbery after a money delivery because on a couple of them, they, they talked about the money was just delivered. Give us the money. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, but really violent. They would go in and they would just start spraying rounds, uh, terrorize, terrorize the bank employees, terrorize the patrons and uh, pretty scary stuff. So um, there was a task force and the task force, the investigative task force identified 14 banks. Uh, in the San Fernando Valley that they believe were high risk. And in, um, I think it was June, the June prior, is we spent like three days full-time LAPD, LAPD, with all their resources as far as Metro RHD and FBI. And we split the, or they split the uh, San Fernando Valley in half. Uh, 405 freeway, west of the 405 freeway we had, east of the 405 freeway the FBI had, so we had teams set up on the banks. They were going to let them commit the robbery and then take them away. And if they uh, bed down, then we were just going to treat it as a call-up because we did not want to put uh, hostages at risk. So so the logistics associated with that, because there was rental cars, there was all the tactical vehicles and tactical sport vehicles, airships, the, the investigative folks, uh, it was... Uh, the planning and preparation for that was was significant. So our our little role was uh, uh, in the event um, uh, robbery, we'll uh, let them let them go. The airship will take it. There will be no vehicles following, and wherever they land, then we'll uh, uh, set up on it. So it was one of the response team associated with that. Never happened. Hmm. Never happened. And and literally we forgot about it until that that February morning. And I had got up to the police academy just getting ready to work out. And Donnie Anderson, and Donnie Anderson is the one that's going to be driving the black and white that's going to engage Emil Mazzarano, rolls up and just getting ready for a run. He said, <clears throat> Bank of America, it's on. Those guys are there and they're popping off rounds. Hmm. And I go, great. I said, let's grab, grab. Uh, it was Gomez, Massa, Y-Reader, myself, and Donnie. Let's just go. My former partner, he's never forgiven me for this. He's coming up. Uh, uh, Steve Steer, I apologize. Steve, start driving the academy, start picking up guys, and send them to North Hollywood. So good soldier, Vietnam vet, American veteran. He gets in his car, starts picking up folks. So there's going to be like a 12, 13-minute delay of getting the rest of the troops there. Mm. Um, so the the... Five that I mentioned, uh, Anderson, Gomez, Massa, Wyder, and myself, uh, in trail go to uh, the B of A in North Hollywood. So driving distance, probably going to be 11 or 12 miles, uh, freeway driving from the police academy by Dodger Stadium to North Hollywood. And I will, I will share this with you. It was the most terrifying ride that I've ever been in because I was the last car and Donnie Anderson was driving like a madman. Mm. And... Um, uh, but when we get there, all we can hear is gunfire. We can just hear, and we don't have a landmark yet, um, so we know we're close. Uh, the uh, the sounds. So this is how I would describe it: is that if you go to a SWAT shooting training day at the range, right, and you close your eyes and hear all those rounds going off, okay, now open your eyes and and you're on, you're in a bank. 
and you're in your community in North Hollywood. Mm. That's how it sounded. Wow. And um, so, uh, you know, barking out orders, uh, uh, I, I told Donnie, I said, just get eyes on the bank. Just call out what we need because we know we got folks coming. And really what we're looking at, uh, just get one sniper up and we're going to be fine. So those folks are coming. Um, so Donnie, uh, uh, Donnie Anderson, uh, Steve Gomez, Rick Massa get into a car because they're getting eyes on the uh, – uh, the bank, uh, Y Reader, is going to start a, a rescue effort because we had no idea. We're, we're being told that there are people down everywhere and, and how we're going to coordinate the rescue effort, uh, uh, provide uh, life-saving measures, all of that, because we don't know. And I'm trying to look for the incident commander to let them know, hey, we're here. We're deploying <laughs> resources. So understand when you see our folks there is that, that, that we're going to uh, assume, uh, assume this mission. Never saw him the whole day. Never saw him the whole day. Never connected up with them. Wow. I had the SWAT radio. I had the Metro radio. I had the North Hollywood radio. And I'm and trying to figure it out. And I'm walking uh, up towards the bank. Uh, my boss uh, is en route from home in Huntington Beach. And and I know these resources are coming. But how how long this is going to go and, and the disadvantage that we have is you have people watching it live on TV, right? And uh, again, opining of what should be done. Well, why why aren't the snipers there? Why aren't they there? Well, because we're we're just getting there, right? And we we don't we don't have eyes on the location. So um, uh, then I then I, 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 Donnie gets me on the radio. and says, uh, 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 "We see one of the suspects." So. So if you watch the if you watch the video of that, is that when they leave the parking lot, they're going to separate the two suspects, Larry Phillips and the Mel Serrano, are going to separate one in the vehicle, one's walking behind him. So there's this ongoing gun battle with uh, Phillips, who ultimately self-inflicts, mm -hmm. and then Mazzarano continues down Archwood or whatever the street was, and that's who Donnie Anderson and Steve Gomez, Rick Massa. Uh, they see him because now he's stopped and he's trying to commandeer another car, but they have officers who are on the perimeter waving to him going, he's there, he's there, he's there. So when Donnie sees him, he just goes full throttle. He drives directly into the V, the V of, of, of where <clears throat> what, what Donnie did was took away um, – this guy's ability to, to shoot at him. Instead of being wide, he went directly at him. And if you watch a Mazzarano with his, his weapon, uh, one, you have Gomez is coming out of the car and uh, popping off rounds. And, and you can see in Mazzarano's face, and I'm writing my own narrative here, is that, okay, we got a sea change here. Hmm. Something changed. Well, these are rifles now. These aren't, these aren't nine millimeters. Right. This is a rifle. And then I got uh, a madman driving right at me. And so he brings up his weapon and he starts spraying um, that black and white. Um, so the test question I always ask folks, how, how many rounds did the uh, Donnie's black and white take? Um, 120. Not one round. Oh, really? Missed. Missed everything. Oh, Missed wow. everything. Missed wow. everything. And if you watch Machuano, uh, he's just... There's no front sights. He's just using it just to, to okay, don't. Uh, there's a lot more rounds coming at you, uh, so don't come my way. And uh, uh, Gomez, Donnie, and uh, Rick, when they stop, uh, then they engage Mazzarano, and in, in, uh, I believe he's really confused right now because when he's not expecting that type of uh, uh, offensive behavior and, and just a, a, a direct effort to stop his uh, deadly behavior. Right. And it was Massa, and, and you really probably need to interview those folks. It was Massa who, who can't get a sight picture on the guy because he's behind the car. So he goes to ground. So he's lying, he's lying on the ground behind a tire, and then he sees part of a leg, and he's able to start tagging his leg. And every time that uh, he's hit is that it starts turning Mazzarano around, and then they have a greater sight picture and are able to disable him. Mm, right. So um, the number of rounds they fired were were effective, and that stopped that incident. So let's let's go to postscript. Who 
So this is after the movie Heat. Right. Okay. So right. there's there's some similarities in these these two suspects were enamored with the movie Heat. Mm. They had a room in there where wherever they were staying at, and they had videos of of action videos, if you will, and one of them was Heat, and I think it was in the VCR uh, the day of. Wow. So so that changed uh that incident changed uh american law enforcement because for the most part is that the notion of uh police officers carrying rifles mm. uh was uh, uh unheard of uh, unnecessary why would a police officer need rifle and 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 that incident showed everyone how we were just absolutely outgunned definitely and then the next sea change is going to be columbine Columbine, when you had that siege, the the belief was that only SWAT can go in and stop the behavior, right. and that stopped everything, and that changed. And then you look at all of these other just uh, horrible and tragic incidents. Every time there is going to be a change, you know, whether it's Virginia Tech, Aurora, Han Sandy Hook, uh, Uvalde, I mean, it this goes on, is that for law enforcement, the expectation is is that we will intervene immediately and stop the threat. Right, right. We do it well, and at times we don't do it so well. Yeah. Um, getting back to the uh, the part of the Hollywood shootout where the— you know, Donnie comes up to the car and there's, they engage and the officer starts shooting uh, the suspect's leg. You know, we all saw it on TV, um, which is incredible. Very close. Do you know how close they actually were? And if you don't, it's okay. I, just... I, I, I don't. Um, I, I don't. They, they would be good to interview because uh, that, that was an event, uh, a law enforcement event that uh, just confounded confounded uh confounded many right so um you know once once that suspect was secured i, I ended up in the uh the bank with the team there to to you know secure the bank and the victims um were just um they, they couldn't speak they, they, the the trauma was so great they were they were just standing. They were literally like zombies or mm. like The Walking Dead. If you need you need a real life picture, you just yeah. for the first twenty or thirty minutes afterwards because of what they saw, heard, and uh, even inside, as far as the number of rounds that uh, they uh, let go and uh, the behavior inside, and then in the parking lot. So you're inside your bank, you know, just lying on the ground, hoping to God that uh, none of the rounds hit you. Right. And you have this gun battle that just goes on for a period of time. So, yeah. Um, again, I thought I saw, I thought I had seen everything. Well, and those are, only, you know, you've had this 51 year plus career. Right. And those are only three incidents that you've been involved in, you know, you mentioned, but you were involved in obviously, you know, so many, right. some well-known, uh, some just not. Uh, and that's just how law enforcement is. A lot of great work by law enforcement officers is done consistently and daily, and we just don't know about it. Uh, it's those ones that are on the news, but there's so many things going behind the scenes. Uh, but even with, with those three incidents, and through your whole career, is there one moment that stands out that is most, and it could be one of these three, but something that is most memorable? Well, um, There's a there's a number of them, uh, even some with uh, with humor. We're negotiating with the suspect in a hospital, <clears throat> and it was one of our negotiators that uh, <laughs> was just kept grinding and grinding. And the guy goes, "Stop, please stop! <laughs> Can I surrender? I can't. I don't want to listen to you anymore." <laughs> so so you're gonna have humorous moments. Sure, uh, a, a very one that is traumatic for me was uh, uh, the death of Randy Simmons and that incident. And I shared with you maybe another time we can yes, go sir. into uh, that incident. But there's there's uh, so many of them. I I tried to do the math on the call-up. So uh, uh, I was involved in that in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So either from a command and control, a supervisor or an officer, 
probably close to 2,000 call-ups. Wow. And probably more uh, high-risk warrant services. But if you were to ask me, and I'll I'll give you the question, high-risk warrant service, SWAT call-up, where did you have the most anxiousness? Hmm. It would would be the warrant services because those were unknowns. Unknowns in the sense that uh, typically – uh, the subjects involved were armed, had weapons, had criminal history, they had behavioral issues. Uh, some of them had nothing to lose. And, and, and especially when I was the uh, SWAT commander, Tim David, uh, I was more anxious at warrant services because I knew how fragile that process was. And if, if it got away from us, then it, it's going to be a bad outcome. At SWAT incidents, when our folks got there, I, 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 I was so confident in their skill sets and their professionalism that uh, I was, uh, I was always in a good place. And yeah. I, I remember standing at the corner, walk and don't walk, and rounds are popping off all over the place by the suspect, and and to hear our folks on the radio, very measured, hmm. yeah, it popping yeah. off some rounds uh, come from the attic window. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and, and that's what you want. And, right. and the tempo as far as managing and managing yourself are essential. In fact, the one where this guy's popping off rounds, there was a, there was a gal that was, uh, a, a small, a uh, small child, uh, you know, you know, eight, 10 years old. And she's on a cell phone. This is like two in the morning and she's by the command post. Well, she was part of the family there. And I go, sure. Who are you talking to? My uncle. That's the shooter. <laughs> oh, jeez. So, so, so I said, let me introduce you to some folks, and right. uh, um, uh, and and that was a negotiated outcome. Hmm, right. uh, and, and after uh, uh, it was fraught with violence and a negotiated outcome. So, so if you get a group of SWAT guys here and they start stories, begets other stories and stories. I, I remember with the uh, the Alaska SWAT team is that they would have animal interference. Oh. They're at a call-up, and they had problems with uh, deploying tear gas because it was so cold. And then a polar bear rolled in, <laughs> and they had to navigate. And, and, and I was fascinated by their stories. And, of course, they wanted to hear our stories. Right. But we didn't have to navigate weather. We didn't have to navigate polar bears. And you had a moose on the perimeter if you're a, a sniper guy. So... Um, there's a boatload of stories. Right. A boatload, a uh, case study. Let's call them case studies. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Uh, what about, do you have, uh, and if, you know, does one like immediately, out of all these years, even as a young officer, your most memorable arrest? Nothing stands out because there were, there were so many. Right. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what uh, is memorable, and this is really odd, is my first 5150. So this is like in 1972, and we uh, take this gal into custody, and who clearly had mental health issues, and no one knew what to do. Um, and it, it may have been uh, 73, 74, whatever. So, so we were told, um, uh, go to Parker Center, uh, which was a police building, you know, uh, go to the bottom, go to the basement room, 150, 151. There's a guy there that essentially is going to do the evaluation. And, uh, so this is where I'm going to have an epiphany as far as mental health addiction right. and, uh, SWAT incidents where they're all, they're all going to come together. So we go to this guy. And so you got two young police officers that have no idea what they're doing other than they know that something's not right. They know something's not right and what can be done so that there's a good outcome for uh, the subject. So we're talking to the guy, and, uh, and and again, I didn't even know what a 5150, that's a mental health hold, an involuntary mental health hold for your folks out of state. Uh, we didn't even know what a 5150 was, and uh, so you're going to put him on a hold, you're going to uh, take her to the hospital, and then you're going to just uh, uh, drop her off and go. Uh, so that's what exactly what we did, drop her off and left. Then I'm thinking, okay, and then what? So what mm, what right. happens to her? Is there follow-up resources? Is someone going to, is there going to be case management? So this is in the early 70s. Law enforcement was unsophisticated when it came to that process. 
And then fast forward to when I go to CNT school and we talk about folks that have mental health underpinnings, mental health disorders, addiction, and uh, you know involved in crises. And then you fast forward to where we're at today is that where we take a hard look as far as how we manage these incidents. Is it is this driven by mental health? Is it driven by addiction? Is it driven by emotion? Is it driven by crime, just evil? and Or is it a combination of everything? Right. Uh, are those uh, elements and how are you going to manage it moving forward? And, and there was a time, you know, at call-ups I would ask, uh, is he going to jail or going to a hospital? Uh, depending on the behavior, especially if there's suicidal ideations, they're demonstrative as far as weapons and all that. So, so the way, the way that we manage and look at incidents now, it, it's a more clinical approach uh, we have psychologists attached to their team. We have mental health clinicians attached to our team so that so that if there's a mental health component is that e- even if there's a criminal component, we'll take crime. But post-incident, make, make sure that person is uh, getting resources right. so we don't see him again. I, I will. I, I, I do remember uh, one incident. We had a guy that was a subject of a SWAT call up four times, four times. Four times, and he he literally just kicked our ass, and he was a jumper. And and when he would get into a funk or he needed food, he would go to the top of the building. This is all downtown within like a three three block area. I think the last name was Williams, and he would just go to the top of the building and just stand there. Didn't have to phone anybody. <laughs> they would phone for him. So we get out there, first call. We're talking to him. I think it was Art Williams, going back and forth, and he goes, "Look at." I'll come down if I can get a Subway sandwich and a pair of tennis shoes. Not a problem. Right. Come down. Month later, same thing. Different request. On the fourth time, on the fourth time, so don't share this with anybody. <laughs> on the fourth time, I get a call at two in the morning, and it's him. No, no, uh, get it from uh, Central, and then we have a jumper. And I go, stop. Let me describe him to you. So I start to describe him. He goes, how did, uh, how did you... Uh, you're really good. How do you know that? I <laughs> right. said, this is what I want you to do. Uh, uh, okay, I'm since retired. I said, you go up to him, say, Mr. Williams, Albany said, if you don't surrender, is that he's going to come out and he's going to push you off the building. <laughs> <clears throat> and and he goes, no, I can't say it. I said, verbatim, verbatim, <laughs> and, I'm in, and I, I'll tell you what the outcome was. And it's um, uh, going to be, and it, he surrendered. And we never saw him again. Wow. Okay. Never saw him again. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So It worked. Uh, it, 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 it worked, but uh, I don't recommend that. No. <laughs> Nowadays, you probably couldn't get away. Oh, you could not get away with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that guy, we, uh, the third time, uh, he wanted a bus to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Not only did we get the uh, bus for him, we, we provided him a police escort to the Greyhound station, gave the bus driver food money for the guy, believing, okay, that'll be the last time. He's gone. And, yeah. and number four... No bueno. It didn't work out. No, it didn't. Oh, the fourth one worked out. The third yeah, fourth, one. Yeah. yeah. Third, third one didn't. He came back. <laughs> yes. Well, this has been fascinating. I mean, honestly, your, uh, your time to be here today and, and the stories. Uh, case of, studies. They're case studies. They're yes. Not stories. The, good point. Stories. Good yeah, point. Yeah. Case studies have been fascinating. And, um, you know, people are going to learn from this, uh, watch it, and be fascinated. And, you know, with all your years of service, uh, the things you've done for, you know, LAPD, um, for Burbank, as their chief, uh, just law enforcement in general. And it's not just in L.A. County, uh, obviously, you know, throughout the state and around the nation and obviously, you know, outside the United States, you've been an influence to so many people and uh, just your knowledge, your expertise, um, you know, uh, goes a long way. So I really do appreciate you spending time with us today. So so, uh, understand this, that uh, uh, I just didn't fall out of a closet. I had some folks that came behind me and, and, and help me out. So the Ron McCarthy's of the word, Hillman, um, uh, uh, Jeff Rogers, and the position I have right now, a lot of gratitude to Chief Scott Lachosse, oh, yes. because I, I never thought I would become a bureaucrat. Uh, in fact, I am today what I've had disdain for for the first 40 years of my career, and that is uh, bureaucrats. Yes. So I am one now, and uh, I actually enjoy being a chief. i got a great department. My folks are great. I'm in a good place. But thank you for the kind words. You're, you're welcome. And let me just backtrack just real quick because you brought that up with your, your staff now. So with Burbank, what, and what, do you, what is the best part of being the chief of police 
to represent the Burbank Police Department? So um, a, a couple things. Uh, one is that you have the police department, you have the community. This is the first time in my law enforcement career that I've been immersed into a community. I know community members. In my former life, that just wasn't the case because we served the whole city. Right. So I'm on some boards there, service uh, service groups, uh, 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 people email uh, and um, uh, I phone them. I, I give them a personal response. And for me, it's a CNT operation every day. Yeah. And uh, a community that supports their uh, uh, police department, that supports the law enforcement mission, but they have high expectations. They want concierge service, and we're going to deliver that service for them. So, uh, so I'm in a great place. I have a really, really good department. It's very young. We've onboarded probably uh, 90 folks since uh, we've been there since 2010. So we've um, acquired uh, the latest technology, um, make sure they have uh, training opportunities, uh, define the expectations, and, uh, and they, they see me around the station and they see me at roll call and they'll see me at a call if uh, necessary. And uh, I know everyone by the first name and I'm, I'm in a really good place. Well, that's, you know what, I, I know you know this, but to have the chief there, know your first name, be around the troops, goes a long way. So so you know who I learned that from? Who's that? Daryl Francis Gates. Daryl Francis Gates. He was remarkable when, when it came to his officers. Um, in fact, there was a moment, and, and I know we're wrapping up here, where uh, my daughter, Liz, um, I think it was his book signing. So she introduced herself and said, you're not going to know my dad. And she goes, who is it? She goes, Albany's, Mike Albany's dad, and you know, blah, blah, blah. She she came back beaming. Right. And um, and it's important, but it's important that you know your folks and having babies, kids. I mean, look at uh, In law enforcement, we're your neighbors. We went to the same schools you did. We go to your churches. We were your coaches. We're... We're, we're like everyone else. That's right. And, and it's important that, um, that we're all connected. Yes. Very well said. Yeah. Thank you very much, Chief. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you like the show, please follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the show notes from each episode, visit BehindTheLinePod.com. If you want to support the show and hear more from our first responders and military veterans, head over to patreon.com slash behind the line. I'll see you on the next one.